Well, Jude, verse 12. These are spots in your love feasts. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. Let me start by making two statements. The first, God is love. And the second, God is more than love. There's a Bible verse that has become quite popular today. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not lo- love does not know God, for God is love. And these last three words echo. God is love. In many people's minds, God is love above all else. And there is no doubt, love is one of God's central traits. But love is not the only characteristic that God possesses. For he also cares about justice and righteousness and purity and judgment and even retribution and vengeance. Did you know that the Bible teaches that God brings harm to those who cause harm? Romans 12 verse 19 is a strange verse to our ears. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. God avenges man's evil deeds. Have you considered the God who is love is also faithful to even the score with those who act unloving? Maybe not. For it's true, the great fascination of today's modern church is God's love. And why this emphasis? I'm sure people have rationalized, if God is all about love, if love is all that he values, if God only cares about loving us and not judging us, then you can ignore the Bible's moral standards. You can do as you please. This is why people today have fallen in love with God's love. And nowhere is this more evident than in our music. There is a website titled worshiptogether.com. It's a clearinghouse for Christian praise and worship songs. And there's a search engine to help you locate 
the lyrics. This past week, Matt and I conducted an experiment. We searched for God's love, the words God's love. And we found 653 songs on this website that deal predominantly with God's amazing love. But how many songs came up when we plugged in God a consuming fire? Well, that was just 31. How many songs contain the words God's wrath? That's also a big part of the Bible. Only nine. Or God's jealousy. How about five? Or God's judgment. A measly three. God's anger. A mere two. God's fury. Only one. And I hate to say it, but it gets worse. Our worship leader, we all love Matt. He's a good guy. He has a database for songs that we sing here at Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain. And of our 635 songs, nearly half, 304, speak of God's love. But just 24 songs that we sing speak of God's anger. Only four talk about God's wrath. Just three refer to God's jealousy. And only two deal with God's judgment. Even our own church hasn't escaped the climate in which we live, a climate that is preoccupied with God's love to the neglect of the other aspects of who God reveals himself to be. God is love, but lots of verses also speak of different aspects of God's nature, and they are as descriptive of God as his love. Like people, human beings made in God's image, the divine personality is also multifaceted. For example, Deuteronomy 6 verse 15 tells us, God is a jealous God. Joshua 23 verse 10, God is he who fights for you. God fights. Psalm 7 verse 11, God is a just judge. Again, the same verse, God is angry with the wicked. Here's an interesting verse that reveals a side of God not often mentioned. Psalm 144, verse 1. The Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. You don't often associate that with God. Daniel 9, verse 4. God is righteous in all the works he does. He's righteous. Nahum, chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord avenges and is furious. Colossians 3, verse 6. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. In Hebrews 12, verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. Put it all together, and here is what we learn about God. God is jealous or desirous of our devotion. God is willing to fight for what's right. God upholds justice and fairness. God is a judge who punishes evil. God is a preparer for war. God is angry at people who do wickedly. God is right in all he does. God is a repayer of evil. God is furious in dealing with rebellion. God burns with passion like a blazing fire. And yet, God is still merciful and gracious and great and good and kind and is love. In Exodus 33 and 34, Moses asked God, please show me your glory. 
And so God appears to Moses on the mountain. And here's how the Lord reveals himself to Moses. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Obviously, at the core of his being, God is love. We could write a few songs about that, couldn't we? But God is more. For he continues, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In other words, God also promises not to ignore our sin, and he refuses to shelter us from its consequences. A people's sin even affects the generations that follow. If you've ever been the parent of a teenager, you know how these contradictory concerns reconcile in real life. I loved my teenagers. I had four of them, in fact. They were fun to be around. My teenagers were full of life, unafraid, willing to take risks. It was a lot commendable about those teenagers. But were there times when I got furious with my teenagers? (laughs) Yes, I did. Did I ever get angry when they rebelled? Of course I did. Did I judge their behavior? That's a parent's job. And did I hold my teenagers accountable for the consequences of their actions? Yes, certainly I did. And did the fact that I was furious and I got angry and I punished my teenagers when they were wrong, did that in any way dilute or diminish my love for them? Of course not. In fact, my love, my positive ambition for my teenagers probably inflamed my anger when they refused to cooperate with me. And in the same way, there is no contradiction between the two truths that I mentioned. God is love, and God gets angry with the wicked every day. In fact, fact, God gets angry because he loves. If he didn't love, he wouldn't care. And these seemingly contradictory characteristics get played out perfectly in God. For God is holy. That means God is like unlike anyone else. He is in a category all by himself. Though his judgment is just and right, his love for those he judges is steadfast. Though his anger is inflamed by our rebellion, he never stops loving the rebel. God is love, but God is far more than love. And this is what many people don't get today. They assume that since God is love, he would never punish our behavior or get angry when we rebelled or hold us to a standard and correct us when we fall short or get furious when we lead others astray. If God loves us, why doesn't he just ignore our sin and let us live however we please? But that's not the way that God's love works. Carlton Pearson was a popular Pentecostal preacher who fell away from the faith. His own denomination branded him a heretic. Netflix even did a movie about his apostasy. Sadly, it promoted his heretical conclusions. For Pearson caters to today's obsession for a God who is all about love, 
who would never restrict us or upset us, a God who allows us to be and do whatever we please. Pearson now believes there's no such thing as hell. He concludes, how can a truly loving God punish a person for eternity? In an interview, he was quoted as saying, I couldn't reconcile eternal punishment with the moral character of a God of love. How can mercy endure forever and hell endure forever? And like so many other people today, Carlton Pearson is ignoring who God has revealed himself to be. For God is eternal love and eternal justice. God's love doesn't cancel out his justice, and his justice doesn't negate his love. The two coexist, and they work together in tandem. God is a big God. He can handle both justice and mercy. Ironically, God loves every single person in hell. He does. But if you reject the ultimate expression of his love in the sacrifice of his only son, Jesus, then you have to face his justice. God is love and justice. If God's love is supremely gracious, then its rejection is supremely condemnable. It's sad that we put God's love above all his other traits and ignore the totality of who God says he is. And where do people get these false notions of God? Well, this is where Jude enters the picture. He saw that there were false prophets and bogus teachers in the church who stressed God's love but ignored God's justice. In verse 4, Jude spoke of ungodly men who creep into the church, and I quote, turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God in our Lord Jesus Christ. Even in Jude's day, there were false teachers who talked of God's love while denying God's purity and God's authority. Last week, we discussed Jude's warning to remember what we've been taught. False doctrine gains a foothold in softened memories, in minds that have forgotten the Scripture. You remember what Jude told us, Israel listened to the wrong people and they died in the wilderness. Now, where are we getting our counsel? Angels before the flood ignored God's boundaries and are punished to this day. Are we respectful or resentful to the protective parameters God has placed around us? Sodom was destroyed because of her sexual perversions. Do we now condone the same practices for which God judged Sodom? Jude's point is don't forget the Bible and its lessons. God's principles never change. And this is true even when it comes to God's character. Forget God's nature and you end up serving and following a false God. Well, in verse 12, Jude spotlights the false teachers who had invaded the church. Read the book of Acts and Satan's initial strategy to derail the newborn church was persecution. But these early Christians, filled with the Holy Spirit, they, were, they showed a daring faith. And they demonstrated amazing courage. They, they weren't to be intimidated. Thus, where Satan can't intimidate, he then tries to infiltrate. He creeps in. And Jude is warning his readers of such people. Beware. 
And here in verses 12 and 13, Jude paints five descriptive portraits of a person who is a detriment to a church. He wants his readers to be able to spot the traits of a truth twister. He begins in verse 12. These are spots in your love feast. Now understand, much of the fellowship surrounding the early church revolved around the love feast or the agape feast. It was the church's weekly potluck, a community meal. Every Sunday when the church would meet to worship, part of their fellowship was this love feast. It was a time when the poor were fed, believers were refreshed, and the church renewed its unity and its caring for one another. The meal culminated with the taking of communion. And yet there were attitudes taught and exemplified by these false teachers that spoiled and tarnished the feast. Jude continues, While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. And this ominous indictment is all we need to know about these false teachers. They were serving only themselves. You know, you need to understand that when someone says they serve the Lord, they may or may not be doing so. I don't want to discourage anyone with sincere motives. We need more true servants of God. But there are folks who say they're serving God. They get involved in the church. They speak and act in God's name. Yet their motive is selfish and self-centered. In reality, they serve themselves. Their concern is not the welfare of the church at large. They want to look good. They want to be first. They want to have their need met. Their ambition is personal and self-centered. Apparently at the love feast in the early church, Jude is referring to, you could see these people in action. Watch them jump to the front of the line and fill up their plate before their brother. Watch them clamor for attention. Watch them scarf up food rather than sharing with each other. They had no fear of God. It's dangerous to use God to serve yourself. In 2007, Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa, you may have remembered it. At the time, Grassley was the head of the Senate Finance Committee. He launched an investigation into six media-based televangelists. Kenneth Copeland, Joyce Myers, Benny Hinn, Creflo Dollar, Paula White, and the late Eddie Long all of whom taught a prosperity gospel, a falsehood that says all God's children should be rich. Well, at the time, there were legitimate questions as to whether the senator and the federal government were overstepping their bounds. What about the separation of church and state? But what was worse were the abuse of ministry funds and the outlandish expenditures that caused Grassley to feel the need to investigate in the first place. Tax-deductible contributions had been used to purchase private jets, a Rolls-Royce, a Bentley convertible, a $30,000 conference table. I don't think our plastic one costs that much. A $23,000 commode with a marble top, not to mention exorbitant salaries and bonuses. It's sad that supposed servants of God, by their outlandish expenditures, gave the feds a reason to conduct a review of their ministries. 
The real tragedy was that the world had to call out the church for its misuses instead of the church calling out the world. The church should be the watchdog of corrupt practices. Instead, the world was barking at the church. Remember, Jude was Jesus' earthly brother. Mary was also his mother. He knew his Lord Jesus had laid aside heaven's riches to live with him in Nazareth, to identify with the least and the very lowest. You better believe Jude would have conducted an investigation about folks living high on the hog. Here he calls out those who were serving only themselves. But Jude has more to say about these false prophets. He says, they are clouds without water carried about by the winds. Boy, when we see clouds, we hope for rain, don't we? A cloud symbolizes promise. Water is on the way. Yet these false teachers were clouds without water. They promised the believers blessing, but the only person blessed by their ministry was themselves. Jude was angry that men would come and take advantage of God's people. Rather than feed the flock of God, these false teachers were out to fleece the flock. And here's the lesson for us. Beware. We need to beware of people who are not what they appear to be. So many so-called believers today are clouds, but without water. Some Christians are like truffle oil. You know about truffles, don't you? If you watch the Food Channel, I'm sure you've seen truffles. A truffle is a fungus that grows on tree roots. It's a cousin to the mushroom. Truffles are found in Spain, in France, and they have become a dining delicacy. They can't be grown commercially, so they're very rare. In fact, truffle-trained dogs have to sniff them out while they're still in the ground. And as soon as they're pulled up, they start to lose their flavor. Thus, freshness is vital. Truffles, truffles are now a very expensive culinary extra. But here's the scam with truffle oil. Rarely do you even find a trace amount of a truffle in truffle oil. It's olive oil with an chem artificial chemical in it that smells like a truffle. So it's oil that smells like one. It has the aroma of a truffle, but, but there are no truffles. And the problem is this is similar to many Christians. They're clouds without water or they're truffle oil without truffles. These believers come with great promise. You think you know what's inside them only to get hoodwinked. This is why we need to beware of people, some of the people that you date, the people that you sit under their teaching, the people we put into leadership, for people are not always who and what they say they are. But Jude also calls them late autumn trees without fruit, twice, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. A fruit tree that blooms in autumn has had multiple chances to bear fruit. It's survived through several growing seasons, yet despite second and third chances, it's dead and barren. And there are people in the church just like these trees. They're shown great patience. Brothers invest in their lives. 
People give and give and give to them, and they take and take and take, but there's no fruit. Even after numerous opportunities, they still have barren limbs. Do you know any people like this? Jude is saying there are people who've had chance after chance, and there comes a point where they need to be pulled up by the roots and cast aside. Recall God is love, but he is more than just love. It's not that God is ever finished with us. As long as there's breath, there's hope, friends. But it may have to happen in another field, at another time, with a new attitude. For the moment, the person's roots are dead, and it has to be pulled up. Ultimately, it needs to be replanted. Verse 13 continues Jude's description of people who are a blight on the church. He calls them raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. In other words, there are folks who make a splash in the church. These people cause white caps of activity and waves of ministry, but no real kingdom work gets accomplished. Their splash was superficial. You could say some people have a ministry that's all foam and no fruit. Whenever I go to firehouse subs, which is quite often, by the way, I like that freestyle Coke machine. You guys know what I'm talking about? where you're able to design your own soda, you pick your own drink, then you add different flavors if you like. You can mix them all together. You can come up with anything you want. But the problem is it takes forever to fill your cup. There's too much foam. I have to let the foam settle in order to fill up my cup. And this is what you learn to look for in a servant of God. Some folks come in with too much foam. They, They want to discuss what they're doing. And they want to discuss what they've done before and how spiritual they are. Ad nauseum. That's foam. Other people just do it. They just serve. They're flavor, not foam. This is the kind of servant who's a breath of fresh air. They just serve. Well, Jude saves the most vivid description for last. He says, They were like wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. These false teachers were like shooting stars that dart across the night sky. They flash across the heavens for a moment, a second, but end up sailing into oblivion. There are people who lack staying power and commitment. They're here today. They're gone tomorrow. They're like a shooting star. They come into the church with a splash. They claim to be a star, but they end up just a shooting star. I'll never forget the woman who attended our church. She was speaking to a friend who told me about a conversation later. She said, I can't believe you've been at this church for 20 years. As a matter of principle, we attend a church for four or five years, and then we find another. And I would say to that person that they're missing out on a big part of what God designed the church to be. You don't really build substantive fellowship overnight. Often it takes enduring mutual trials It takes weathering the storm, not running for shelter. The real stars in the firmament of the church are those who persevere. It's like the woman who went on a new diet, the all-garlic diet. Every morning she ate a garlic sandwich. At noon it was garlic for lunch, garlicky food for dinner as well. In the end, the woman didn't lose any weight, but people said she looked a lot smaller from a distance. 
That was Jude's take on these false teachers. They looked good. They had style. But they lacked spiritual character. They were all show and no substance. They might have looked good at a distance, but not up close. Well, Jude writes in verse 14, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now this verse blows my mind. Look at how Enoch is identified. He is the seventh from Adam. Now that dates a guy. I mean, you've lived a long, long time ago if your generation was shouting distance from the first man, Adam. And what did this ancient Enoch preach? And again, this amazes me. Enoch didn't talk about Jesus' first coming, though he lived 2,200 years before Jesus was born to save us and to demonstrate his love. Even before his first coming, Enoch spoke of Jesus' second coming. When he returns to the earth with 10,000 of his soldier saints to execute God's wrath on a rebellious planet. Enoch was focused on God's brutal judgment even more so than his amazing grace. Certainly 1 John 4 verse 8 is true. God is love. And his love was seen most vividly in the ministry and sacrifice of his son. But before Jesus came to earth and long afterwards, God is also holy and just and willing to judge. My point is God is love, but God is more than love. I heard a story from World War II. Deep behind enemy lines, a German SS officer was standing patiently. He had a machine gun cradled in his arms. He was watching a bearded Hasidic Jew dig his own grave. When the Jew was done, this man, he turned to the Nazi soldier and he said straight to his face, God is watching what you are doing. And with that, the man with the gun rained a storm of bullets upon the man and killed him on the spot. Apparently, that German soldier didn't believe what the Jewish man told him. Neither did Hitler. Neither did Stalin. Neither did Chairman Mao or the Muslim government of Sudan, or the Hutus of Rwanda, or the Ugandan dictator Idi Amin, or Kim Jong-il of North Korea, or the rival factions in Syria, or a host of other cruel regimes. But it's true. There is a God who is watching what you are doing. And in the end, He will right all wrongs. For to love the violated is to punish those who violate. God is love, but God is more than love. Jude continues his expose on these false teachers in his day. He says they are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. You know, false teachers are not contented people. They're not satisfied with God's blessing. They want more. And they'll tell people what they need to in order to get more. 
more money or more members or more attention or more glory. It's not about God to them. It's about more. Beware of the Christian who grumbles and complains under his breath. For when he opens his mouth, you can trust there's a game being played. He's out to get something. He'll speak whatever is necessary to fulfill his ambitions. Rather than teach the Bible honestly and let it speak for itself, there are shrewd, unscrupulous pastors who will use the Bible to fulfill their own agenda and foster their own schemes. Jude tells us they use great swelling words and they flatter people to gain advantage. In other words, there's no integrity in their parsing of the scriptures. They twist the Bible to please and convince their listeners. Such preaching is actually manipulation. And no wonder Jude was so outraged. One year I received a card. It read simply, thank you for teaching God's word and not a lot of other stuff. I cherish that card. My goal is to make that always true. The Bible doesn't need a pastor's spin. I want to preach the unadulterated word of God. I want to give it to you straight up. And then verse 17 But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. Again, Jude reminds his readers that they've been forewarned. There are influencers in every church who are more sensual than spiritual, more lustful than loving, more committed to themselves than they are to God, and more attuned to their physical appetites than to biblical attitudes. Sadly, the world can still influence us, even at church. And under this kind of self-centered, self-absorbed leadership, the church fractures in its splinters. Self-seeking leaders drive the church apart. Too often cracks in the church are caused by crackpot leaders. Godly, unselfish, servant-hearted leadership is what binds a church together. When leaders submit to God and to one another and follow the truths of the Bible, the people of God follow suit and remain united. Jude reminds his readers and us that Jesus himself and his apostles predicted that in the last days, mockers would infiltrate the church and teach people to walk according to their own ungodly lusts. I believe the last days are here and that the mockers abound. That includes the former mega church pastor from Grand Rapids, a man named Rob Bell. Many of you have heard of him. Sadly, Rob has turned his back on many of the truths he once believed, including his confidence in the Bible. We should pray that he repents. Recently, Rob mocked the sufficiency of Scripture when he made the comment, the church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense. He's insulting the book of books that has literally changed my life. Rob Bell wrote a book of his own entitled Love Wins, where like Carlton Pearson, he advocates for universalism. That there is no hell. That everyone ends up saved in the end. In the book, Bell makes the comment that to say God will send a person to hell is to turn God into a monster. 
But I like the review of Bell's book that appeared in the Christianity Today magazine. It was more a critique of the theological liberalism that's infiltrated many of today's mainline Protestant denominations. It recites a prediction by a man named Richard Niebuhr many years ago. He warned of a Christianity that preaches, and I quote, a God without wrath trying to bring men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without a cross. And I'm afraid we are there. We want a God without wrath. We no longer admit to sin or that it even exists. People want to discount any judgment. And wow, they never speak of the cross. But notice the fatal launch point. A God without wrath. That's what we've been talking about this morning. A God that's all about love, but nothing else. This is the seed of many of today's false doctrines and heresies. Christianity Today goes on to defend the Bible's teaching. It says, when all is said and done, there is no painful contradiction between the love and justice of God. In the end, not only does love win, but justice too. In short, God is love. But he is more than love. Don't forget the scriptures. And let anyone turn the true God into a diminished God. His wrath, his anger, his judgment are as much of who God is as his love. This may not be the God you want. But it is the God that is. For all eternity, God is both loving and just. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning and from these warnings from Jude. Lord, I pray that you would help us to take these things to heart. Lord, you are real. You are who you say you are. You have revealed yourself to us. There is no denying it. We can either accept it or reject it. And Lord, I pray that as your people, Lord, we would bow ourselves before you. We would learn to fear you and respect you. Lord, we would relish your love, for it is great and it does abound. But you are also a God who can't be diminished. A God who is just and right. A God who has expectations for his people. A God who expects us to trust you, to love you in return. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd work in our hearts this morning. Help us to be your people, not just in name only, but in deed and in truth. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you for who you are. Help us to get to know you more. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.